This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. President Donald Trump spoke to other global leaders in in the business world at Davos. He wanted to deliver a message of the U.S. being open for business, especially in the wake of the tax bill. But other global leaders took the stage to deliver important messages as well, like Emmanuel Macron of France and Angela Merkel of Germany. They have addressed issues that they see as important to preventing growth in Europe. To discuss that part of the story, we are joined on the phone by Olivier Chatin, who's an associate professor of strategy and business policy development at HEC Paris, and he is also a senior fellow at the Mac Institute for Innovation Management here at the Wharton School. And also joining us is Dr. Stephen Sylvia, who is a professor of international service at American University. Olivier, Steve, great to have you both with us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, what has been your reaction, Olivier, to to some of the comments of the leaders over at Davos? Well, uh, so we just had this morning the, I mean, this afternoon here, the the speech by by President Trump, and uh, clearly this was a more polished and controlled performance than what he what he did uh, when he came for the NATO summit over the summer. Uh, but I think that what the Davos summit is demonstrating is that although economically, I would say that Europe is, is certainly getting better, there's still a lot of political fracture and there's a bit of a leadership void that some people are attempting to to, to fill up. Uh, but one thing that's still constant is uh, I think there's a deep mistrust in terms of the relationship between Europe and the U.S. Uh, that President Trump is, is still not able to, uh, let's say, to, to alleviate. So that, that lack of trust is something that's new and that has been consolidating in the, in the past year. And although the Davos summit is kind of is not offering news about that. So that's, that's still constant, and I think all the countries are adjusting to that as, as much and as well as they can. Stephen, what's been your reaction to all the commentary there? Well, we very much saw Donald Trump, the salesman, that he came in with a positive, short, constructive speech, and the, the main message was, my policies have made America an attractive place to do business again through deregulation and tax cuts, and he was announcing to the world, take another look, take a new look at the United States. It was interesting how several world leaders uh, at Davos made their pitches and spins to help move their own agendas. Right. For example, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, in the lead-up to Davos, announced that that there was the new remade TPP, the, uh, the comprehensive progressive uh, trade pact for the Pacific. And he was clearly sending a signal to President Trump that if things go rough with the NAFTA negotiations, that he has alternatives. Uh, Emmanuel Macron of France, uh, 
made the argument that France is open for business and also made a pitch that France can make a version of capitalism that's more socially responsible but also promotes growth. And then Angela Merkel made her arguments uh, that certainly fit within the German context of a country that has such a large current account surplus she made the argument that protectionism is not the answer and that right-wing populism is what she called a poison. Well, you go, let's go to Macron for a second, Steve. And uh, the message you mentioned for Macron basically was invest, share, and protect. And, and I've mentioned it on this show in the past that it seems like Emmanuel Macron is, is trying to set himself up as, and obviously we're getting uh, closer to the end of the term of Angela Merkel uh, as the Chancellor of Germany, uh, but it seemingly it feels like Macron is setting, trying to set himself up to be kind of that face of the EU moving forward. Very much so. I think he is trying to have a forward positive vision for 21st century capitalism. He wants more flexibility, which has been the, the big problem with the French economy. But he also is trying to borrow some from the playbook of Scandinavian countries like Denmark to try to combine uh, new flexibility, but also security so that uh, people won't fall through the cracks. Olivier? Yeah, I very much agree. Uh, if you look at, at Macron's position now, is that to some extent, is I mean, his goal is really to to, to play to play catch up and to to make up for many years of of lack of reform in France. Uh, is in this funny position where he was probably expecting Angela Merkel to be backing him up, but she's right now still in a weak position because she has not achieved uh, to to create a coalition yet. Although there's our progress. There's a lot of progress there. And he's trying to, to fight this line with one hand while he, he wants to show an alternative model. But, you know, this model will still take time to be, to be created. But at least now there's some credibility in terms of there's a clear direction and there's a plan to get there, which was sorely uh, lacking before. At the same time, he, he is trying to both be able to criticize Trump if, if necessary, but, but he also needs uh, U.S. support for many uh, military interventions, especially in Africa. So it's trying to have the best of everything. But don't get me wrong, it's very clear that from, I think, in his mind, he knows that he's very in a delicate position and mm -hmm. he's trying to make the best of that. So the change of mood is important, but things will have to be delivered at one point. I think that this is what all these leaders, especially in Europe, have because the populists are still lurking. And this is not over yet. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of the, the build back of the European economy, Olivier, uh, where does that stand right now? I mean, how, how strong is it if you can compare to, to I guess, pre-recession times? Well, uh, I don't have the numbers with me, but clearly the mood is, is the best that it has ever been since the recession. So there's a feeling that the, the worst is definitely behind. All the countries are more or less growing at a similar pace simultaneously. So that's really helpful because all these countries are also trading with each other. So you see all that helping each other. So on the pure economic side, is certainly looking up. Uh, there's a lot more trust, especially, for instance, in the case of France, with like, okay, so things will be fixed. But on the political side, it's much more, it's much harder. So this Merkel is not really able to do much now. The Brexit situation is making uh, Theresa May uh, kind of a non-entity politically. 
you have still have a lot of issues in, in Spain with uh, with the Catalonian situation. You have Eastern European countries who have worse and worse relationship with the EU because they also have their own populist tendencies. So there's a big contrast. Economically, it's certainly looking up. It's open for business, and that, that's good. Politically, I, I think we've, we're not through yet. Well, and, and speaking of politically, going back to Angela Merkel for a second, she is still uh, trying to obviously deal with some issues uh, in Germany right now. And, and as Stephen mentioned, Olivier, she has this concern of, of the far right in her country, uh, which which obviously is is something that she has to uh, try and see if can be dealt with in the next couple of years. Yeah, and one thing to add to that is yeah. in the coalition that she's looking to make with the Social Democratic Party, if that's successful, it would lead to the Alternative for Germany party being the largest opposition party. And right. so they would have a much greater voice in German politics over the next four years as a result of the choice of the coalition partners. I think that's why she originally went mm-hmm. to try to do this coalition with the Greens and the Free Democratic Party. Also, the Social Democratic Party was at first reluctant. Uh, it, things do look promising in Germany, uh, but there is a there is an underlying concern that if you bring back the same government, if the new government is the same essentially as the old government, that that might add fuel, particularly to right-wing populism in Germany, as being seen as the only alternative. Olivier? Yeah, but that's very true, because you have this dilemma where, for especially the, the social democrats in Germany, were on one hand, and that was their initial position, where we, we don't want to be, again, part of that coalition, because that makes us like uh, an uncredible voice. If it's always the same faces in government, people start to be a bit itchy, and then they turn to 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 to, to the far right. Uh, and so, what what Steve has just described with the uh, alternative for for Dutchland being the only real opposition party is kind of the the nightmare for for uh, the medium term for for Merkel and for for the SPD because then they are just legitimizing all the discourse of of, of alternative for Dutchland. Stephen, what's your reaction to to Theresa May, who has been relatively quiet uh, at Davos? Well, she's always been, since she's been in office, in a position of uh, fence-mending or trying to catch up. And it it was truly an awkward exchange between her and President Trump that, uh, that I think President Trump tried perhaps a little too hard to talk about the close relationship. And for Prime Minister May, it's a challenge because... Uh, President Trump is by no means a, uh, a, a positive figure in, in the U.K., and so she has to, on the one hand, preserve the, the uh, special relationship and that whole discourse, but on the other hand, she needs to be careful not to be seen as being too close to Trump. It was something that when uh, Tony Blair was too close to George W. Bush. He was called George W. Bush's poodle. And <laughs> Theresa May has to really walk a tightrope to avoid uh, falling into a similar box. Olivier? Yeah, I, I agree with, with Steve. There are many parallels between these two situations where you have a very unpopular uh, U.S. president in, in Europe, and then you have... Um, 
political leaders who, who need that relationship, but if it's seen as being too close, it may backfire. And this is exactly the, the way Macron has been handling that has been so far quite interesting, but he's trying to use a, a, a mix of flattery and uh, hard words to, to try to get both of them, both, both of these worlds, if you will. But it's, it's, kind, it's very hard. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Joined by Olivier Chatan of uh, HEC Paris and also the Mac Institute here at the Wharton School and Dr. Stephen Sylvia of American University. I guess, Steve, let me ask you this because... Uh, uh, the reports are out that I guess Mr. Trump, President Trump, is going to go to the UK uh, later this year. At least that was the news that came out a few days ago. Uh, you mentioned kind of the tensions that uh, that President Trump have with the with the the people of the UK right now. Uh, is the expectation that this will actually go off, or will there be some sort of change of plan in your mind later on this year? You know, it's not clear. It was something that was an invitation offered very early uh, in the Trump administration, but it's one that uh, was is is something that is traditionally offered. And the question of the awkwardness uh, of the relationship remains. That we had about a month ago that uh, President Trump declined uh, uh, to go to open the new U.S. embassy. And uh, many in the U.K. saw it as a relief that he made that decision because the concern is that if he does come, there will be uh, massive protests. There have even been instances very early on in the Trump administration where some members of parliament wanted to uh, have a resolution passed saying that President Trump was not welcome in the U.K. So uh, the tensions are, are, are fairly sharp in the U.K. in a way that um, I think these tensions are, are everywhere in Europe regarding President Trump, but they are particularly sharp in the U.K., I think because the U.K.'s politics are particularly fragile in the wake of the, the Brexit vote and the difficult election that uh, Theresa May had that where she ended yeah. up reducing the number of seats she has in Parliament. Olivier? Yeah, no, I think this is exactly the, the issue uh, with Theresa May being in a very precarious position. With, I mean, if you look at the British press, every week there's a sense that her government could fall because on one hand you have the very more hardcore Brexiter who want to think she's too soft with, with the EU, but at the same time public opinion, the, the alternative would be to forge stronger links, for instance, with the US, but if this is being seen as very hard given the current policy and the current personality of the, the president. Uh, Justin Trudeau was mentioned here in the interview a, a few minutes ago, and, and Olivier, I, I'll throw this to you. Uh, are there were there any other leaders that were there that that caught your attention in terms of the approach that they are taking uh, in trying to connect with the people uh, that they're that are that were there at Davos? Uh, well, I think that your initial presentation was the right one. I think everyone is you know open for business. It's kind of a, a competition to to seduce investment, and you had the pre-Davos summit by Macron, which was 
very much along those lines. So it's no longer an issue of disagreement about business. So everyone wants business to work. Now it's more about, okay, how inclusive should that be and to what extent this should be done as uh, in a multilateral way with different countries agreeing to trade with each other or in a more individual way, which is more what is pushed by the current U.S. administration. Steve? Yes. Well, you know, last year we had uh, President Xi in, at Davos from China, and he, in many ways, stole the show. He didn't yeah. go this year. Um, I'd say one leader that stood out whom we haven't mentioned is Paul Kagame, who is president of Rwanda and is currently chairing the African Union. He had a brief meeting with President Trump, and given the uh, you know the reported remarks of President Trump, uh, it, it was important, I think, for President Kagame to show uh, African leaders uh, standing equal with President Trump. There wasn't much substance that came out of it, but I think the symbolism was, was quite important. We'll spend the last few minutes talking about the, the comments of, of President Trump. Uh, what was your reaction to, uh, to what he said, Stephen? With a couple of things that I'd say. One, he, he said the line that was very much developed before he went and that he said before, and that is that he puts America first and he expects all other countries to put uh, the leaders of all other countries to put their countries first. It's an interesting uh, formulation because it, 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 in many ways it echoes uh, the famous passage in Adam Smith's with The Wealth of Nations on saying if everyone acts in their own self-interest, that if you add it all together, you will end up with uh, a society that is best off. And he's sort of making that pitch. It's more He's doing it more in a political way, but a pitch of saying if every country looks out for its self-interest and then they all work keeping their self-interest in mind that the world will be better off. The other point that I think stands out is that President Trump still has not eliminated the contradiction inherent in his economic objectives, because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, he made a strong pitch for foreign direct investment to the United States. But on the other hand, he made the pitch about Trade should be free, but it should, but free so long as it's fair and reciprocal, mm. which yeah. implies a reduction of the current uh, uh, current account imbalance that the United States has. And you can't have both when you look at the math of it. That um, either when uh, when countries sell things in the United States, they can either buy American products with the money they get and that would have trade balance, or they can invest. And if they invest, they aren't buying things uh, made in the United States, so you end up with a trade balance. So the mathematics, sort of just the the fundamental economics of those two claims, they don't add up. Olivier, what was your reaction to his comments? No, I think it's it's pretty pretty right on point. I mean, there are a lot of contradiction between the. It's hard to be at the same time pro business in front of the business audience and then pro, let's say, very protectionist at home with a more populist audience. And you see these contradictions there because it, it really looks good. Like it's like, oh, if we have more investment, we win, right? It, right. it looks good. But if, when you do the math, as Steve said, why well, it's not clear that this is reducing 
imbalances, because if you want imbalances to be reduced, then everything should be at equilibrium. So you should not be investing more or you should not receive less, right? It should be, it's all balanced out. So all that is, is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's not fully thought out, but that's not something new. The other thing I would like yes. to comment from, from the initial um, uh, the parallel with, with Adam Smith and uh, and Holock, se- co- common self-interest is, is good for, for every. I mean, individual self-interest in the end it creates good for, for everyone. Uh, I would like to point out that it's a very big departure from the, what has been the, the U.S. policy from the end of World War II to, to until now, which was really about first values. Yeah. And by agreeing on the values, we would get peace, and we would get that uh, multilateral interest fulfilled. So it was values first, leading to uh, economic fulfillment, as opposed to looking for economic fulfillment on the short run and hoping that things would go, go, go right. So it's, a, it's still a big departure. Well, then, then in terms of those two ideas, uh, obviously you have a long history of one and, and not much of the other. Is there is it easy to say at this point that one is is better than the other at this point? Well, one can look at the record, particularly the U.S. Uh, policies towards Europe. Right. And I think one can say that embracing the values of, of openness and promoting the values of openness, which is what the United States did uh, immediately after the Second World War with the Marshall Plan, right. and continued to do that, pro- always promoting European economic integration, always promoting Asian economic integration with, uh, within the world, you know, particularly Japan. And you can say that the success of the of the first four or five decades of the post-war era show that that sort of approach has been effective. What is, in your mind, Stephen, going to be the impact, uh, continued impact of of President Trump's wanting to do trade deals that seemingly are bilateral and not wanting to get into multilateral deals as much, especially when you're and especially looking at this from from the outside, from the eyes of, say, the Emmanuel Macron's and Angela Merkel's and, and Justin Trudeau's of the world? Well, President Trump, the administration has had trouble finding partners to pursue this approach, that um, they, the Trump administration approached Japan, and the Japanese government more or less uh, was very cool towards the idea and has been more favorable towards pursuing uh, a, a revised Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, with, with which the United States stepped out of. Um, the United States has also talked to the British uh, but there hasn't been much movement there because the British certainly have their handful with the Brexit negotiation. Uh, so there, the idea is out there, but actually finding partners to execute it, uh, it, it hasn't happened yet. Olivier? Yeah, well, that, that's very true. I, and I think that there's a lot of... Maybe there has been too much of a feeling in, in this administration that it would be easy to, to force these multilateral deals. And there was the, the anecdote of President Trump trying to, uh, during Angela Merkel's visit, asking her if, uh, if they could make a deal with Germany. And she said, oh, of course you can do that, but uh, by the way, we delegate that to the EU. Uh, so these things are not that, that simple. And I think it's easier to, when you look at the... 
it's easier to push smaller countries like like South Korea, where you can almost you you can you will sanction like for instance on the on the washing machine recently to to push them to do what you want. But all the other big countries they are already in that web of uh, of, of multilateral deals. And the only one that may be peeling off is the UK. But nothing is going to happen for the next three years because we need another year to leave the EU, and there's probably going to be another transitional deal where they will be effectively as if in the EU for two more years. Right. So although you know, the US administration may, may, may be seeking these deals, but uh, as Steve said, there are very few people willing to forge them. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Olivier. Thank you, Steve. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.